Okay, technology aside, <laughs> I'm glad to be able to be with you. This is my first time at Harbor. So let me tell you a little bit about myself first, just since uh, I'm, I'm new here, and uh, uh, we can talk a little bit about religious trauma this morning. So, yeah, so my name is Chase DiMaggio. Um, I am the pastor of the Burlington Church of Christ in Burlington, Massachusetts. I am, uh, went to school for my Christian ministries degree at Harding School of Theology, and I'm currently working on a couples and family therapy degree through Antioch University. So uh, a little bit about my social location. Uh, as I talk about this with you, because when we talk about trauma, it's really important for us to kind of know where we're all coming from. So um, I am uh, a cisgendered, heterosexual man and a pastor. I have been doing that for more than 15 years full time. But I'm also the uncle to two children, my, uh, to four actually, but um, to two children with mental health disorders. Uh, my nephew was diagnosed pretty young um, as uh, a, a person who's autistic and he identifies as autistic. And my, uh, my niece was diagnosed very early with youth onset bipolar disorder. And that kind of got me into this field of psychology because I spent a lot of time taking care of them and the dynamics of being a pastor and also seeing uh, and trying to care for children with mental health issues um, really kind of came together for me and that kind of oriented me towards uh, be becoming a therapist and uh, and seeing how important our psychological health is in community. One of the things that I do outside of um, talking about religious trauma is also talking about just how to build healthy cultures in community around mental health. So I partnered, if you've ever heard of NAMI, uh, that's the National Alliance for Mental Illness, I partnered with them to uh, build a team and put on a mental health forum for faith communities. So it's an interfaith program. We go and we speak to all um, varieties, all of the tapestry of belief, and we talk about and discuss how to build healthy cultures as a community. So that's a little bit of kind of where I'm coming from. and. Today, I want to kind of invite you in a conversation about talking about just religious trauma, getting an understanding of what the research says about it. And uh, I noticed there were some other classes here about religious trauma right now. And I'm like, well, if you're here with me, you didn't know my name before you walked in this door. Thank you for that. That really blesses me. So I. I I'm excited to do this and trying to not get distracted by the beauty of this place. Yes, it is. I mean, if there was any place to be regulated, I would feel like this would be it, you know? Um, yeah. So uh, before I break in here, let me, um, 
let me just do a couple of things with you. So when we talk about religious trauma, um, sometimes people use that word triggering. Maybe that's not a good word for us to use in the United States anymore. Well, is this, I, this is my just class? Yes. Hi. Okay. Oh, someone came and took care of me. Oh, perfect. Uh, thank you for your help. <laughs> so when we talk about religious trauma, we're talking about a difficult subject. And rather than talk about the idea of triggering, which I feel like is not a, um, a useful word for us here in the United States, I want us to think about something my teacher said to me. We're crossing a bridge to uncomfortable feelings, mm -hmm. okay? And uh, I'm inviting you to participate in that as we do this together. Um, as we do that, I would like to just take 15 seconds of my time to ask you just to feel where you are right now. I'm gonna take a minute and I'm just gonna breathe. And if you'd like to breathe with me, you can. If you'd like to just stay and sit and just be quiet for a minute, that's fine, you can do that. Um, but if you'd like, you can close your eyes and keep them open. Let's just take a breath. How does it feel to come into this room today? What emotions did we bring with us? How does that feel? Is there anxiousness? Is there hurts? It's okay. We can just let them be present. We can let them be here. And we can let them go. We can be comfortable with them sitting with us. One more breath. <coughs> okay, thank you. When I think about religious trauma, one of the things I think comes up for me is why talk about it? Um, at present, uh, and it's actually really encouraging that there's so many um, avenues right now here at this program talking about this, uh, because I think as, a Christ, as Christians and, and, and really in the religious world generally, there is a little bit of a disconsciousness to wanting to talk about these things. Some of that is avoidance. Some of that, I think, is just not knowing exactly how to deal with these kinds of big feelings. One of the uh, things I tend to see in people's lives is when you're dealing with a traumatic event that someone else is experiencing, is that we pull out of our tool bag the only thing that we have. And a lot of times that's silence. And that, unfortunately, doesn't benefit a lot of times the people who've experienced that trauma. So when I decided to start talking about this, I was trying to imagine about religious trauma what where this kind of comes out for me. And for me, it was this quote by Anselm Kiefer uh, that um, actually just very inspiring. People looked at his work. He was a, uh, a photographer who took pictures of 
uh, kind of these destroyed uh, remains after World War II. And they, they captured the grimness of the world and people misunderstood his work to think that it meant that he was kind of showing um, just like something, something grim. But in reality, for him, he describes it this way. He says, ruins for me are the beginning. With the debris, you can construct new ideas. They're symbols of a beginning. And I really fell in love with this because for me, as someone who's trying to transition towards becoming a therapist, I'm going to school for that right now, uh, this hopefulness of realizing that in the midst of our pain and our, our, our hurt, there is an opportunity to see the resources we discover we never had and the new way we can do life. Uh, so Anselm has always has just been an inspiring person for me. I want to talk a little bit about uh, a few stories with you because if we're, I'm going to show you research today, but research outside of context, outside of humanness, it has almost no value. So I want to, I want to kind of center two stories, um, and I'm going to speak vaguely about them because I want to protect their identities. Um, but they gave me permission to share today um, a little bit of their experience. So I'm going to talk about two stories. One from a person who is still a believer, a person who is um, still a member of a congregation somewhere, and the other person who is an ex-member um, from the Christian faith and no longer participates um, in these things. So uh, the first person I want to talk about is the person who is still a member of a faith community. Uh, their story was probably, and will probably feel a little familiar to you, they were young, they were excited about this stuff that they were seeing in their religious community. They, they kind of started going to these uh, uh, just awesome experiences of loving God and praising and just, you know, doing what we've been doing here at Harvard, you know. The excitement that's generated from that uh, is something she experienced when she started early on in her life. Uh, and because of that excitement, she decided, well, you know what, this is it, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna get involved, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna really commit myself to this thing. And uh, she went to her leaders and her leaders said to her, okay, this is what you gotta do, you gotta move to this place. Take everything you got and go here and, and that's where life is gonna begin for you. And so she did, she trusted that. She, she was guided to leave her home, leave behind her support system and go to a new place. And when she got there, she got settled in. Just in time, someone said to her, well, you know, you don't really belong yet. Before you get to belong, we first gotta make sure that you've gotten everything right. We've gotta start correcting some of these things that we see in you. And she said, well, I don't see those things in me. He says, but we see them in you, so you just have to trust us. And so over the course of the next, I think it was quite a long time, it was over a decade of her experience, it was this 
this process of control that was trying to conform her to the, to the way that her, her leaders that discipled her wanted her to experience life. For her, and she described it this way, she said, everyone and everything was God. Everyone and everything was God. If I were to do anything wrong, I was doing it against God. If I was to disagree with the role of those people who were discipling me, then I was disagreeing with God because their word was God's word. That person transitioned out of that faith community into another one. But just moving away from that kind of experience does not remove the hurt or the, the, the trauma that has they've kind of become part of their identity. And so um, even 20 years later, after those experiences, there remains this concern about what is the leadership of this faith community trying to get me to do? How are they trying to control me? And considering it from that perspective, we have to be open to see these experiences. They are in our congregations. They are in our communities. They are probably us. Another uh, person um, in our, uh, that, I, that I spoke with is an ex-member of the church. And this individual uh, started in the same kind of way. It was uh, um, moving because towards spiritual formation. It was looking for the sacred in the world. It was looking for God and the divine. And, but along the way, uh, they experience a different kind of control from the first person I shared about. Uh, their experience uh, kind of came around the issue of mental health really succinctly. And, you know, we've been through, I mean, every religious community in this country and in probably the world, I'd say, has been affected by the pandemic and that experience. Um, but this individual experienced this because at first, at first, the trauma was a secondary exposure. It was listening to leaders tell a friend that that person couldn't go and get mental, uh, uh, medical health uh, care for, from a provider for their cancer. And watching this person um, be told to just have faith and not to use the resources at their disposal was indirectly traumatizing to this individual. But later it became very personal. It became personal because when the pandemic hit, very on, early before vaccines, uh, this person got COVID. And they got long COVID and they got chronic illness. And because of that chronic illness, it uh, alienated her from her community. Because we, in, in the church, we were all scrambling. I was scrambling. You know, I, I didn't know how to use the technology today. But when the pandemic started, I had no idea what I was doing with technology. And uh, 
we were all scrambling as congregations and as leaders to try to figure out how to do all this, but in the midst of that, we're hurting people. And this particular individual, um, uh, was diagnosed with some very severe chronic conditions that she's very expecting that will one day take her life. And in the midst of political divide about arguing about whether we should wear masks or not should wear masks, we have people like her and her husband who also suffered uh, chronic health conditions because of COVID that get lost in the midst of it. Not respected for the safety that they now require, you know, asking, pleading with a community to please wear a mask, please close the church, be respectful of these, these difficult things that they were going through. And yeah, in, in the face of those things, it became too much. She wrote a letter to her church and said, I can't keep doing this, I'm done. The priorities of the person were replaced with the politic. And for her, she felt that very strongly. So we think about religious trauma, we think about the stories because that's what they are. The data is people's stories condensed into numbers. When we talk about religious trauma, I want us to think a little bit about who decides what's religious trauma. Are you? Okay, yeah. Who decides what religious trauma is? There's this idea when you hear someone's story, you hear someone's pain, uh, that we can have a, a empathetic reaction or we can have kind of a disconsciousness to it, a, a rejection, a, that's, that suffering wasn't trauma enough to be trauma. So who decides what trauma is? Who decides if a person's distress meets the criteria of being traumatic? And are there barriers for us to accepting the idea of religious trauma? These questions I want you to think about as you're thinking about the subject. Uh, when we talk about defining religious trauma, there have been a lot of different ways of trying to get at what we're talking about here, especially in the, uh, the, the culture, the way we look at it. Marlene Winnells uh, uh, first coined this. Uh, religious trauma syndrome to provide an avenue for clinicians to think diagnostically about how to care for people and, um, and provide therapy. So um, maybe this will make it to the DSM one day. It is not in the DSM now. Uh, but the goal Marlene had was to raise up a consciousness about what clinicians were seeing, because clinicians are seeing, if any of you are a clinician, maybe you could testify to this, but a lot of clinicians are speaking and seeing clients who have experienced some kind of intersection with religion <coughs> and some kind of distress. So um, uh, Marlene Winnell uh, offers us that interpretation. Uh, this is a very recent um, piece of research. Uh, it literally just came out. I think it's, uh, it's summer 2023, and we're not in summer yet, I don't think. So, um, yeah. <laughs> although Malibu, but I don't know. The North American Committee on Religious Trauma 
um, did research on, on the subject and they came up with a definition of their own in an attempt to try to encapsulate everything that religious trauma is. And they said religious trauma results from an event, series of events, relationships or circumstances within or connected to religious beliefs, practices, structures that's experienced by individual or overwhelming or disruptive and has lasting adverse effects on a person's physical, mental, social, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Um, I like this definition. It's big. I like, yeah. I like brief. So um, they based this uh, definition off of uh, another definition that was done by Stone, Allison Stone, uh, and her article, Thou Shalt Not, is uh, just one of those foundational documents that I don't know if she knew it was gonna be, but it's the one that we see in the research every time you Google religious trauma. Uh, she defined it as pervasive psychological damage resulting from religious messaging, beliefs, and experiences. It's a little less, little less big, you know? Yeah. But um, uh, these are just attempts, all of them are attempts at trying to define the experience. And it's important for us to look at this, I think, um, especially if you're not a clinician, then from a perspective of depathologizing the people that we're talking to. I mean, as, as clinicians as well, I don't think it's that healthy for us to pathologize uh, uh, those who are under our care. I think we can provide diagnosis and we can provide a depathologized approach to their care. But um, uh, it's important for us to think about when someone says, I've experienced something, the instinct is to say that's abnormal, okay? There's something wrong with what's your, your situation specifically. But what I want you to realize is religious trauma is a part of the world in which we live. It's not abnormal, it's normal. It's the response to a situation of overwhelm. It's a situation that's greater than our ability to cope and that's, that's normal. We want to center people's experiences um, rather than the symptoms. Uh, we want to hear their stories. We want to be able to join them in the story that they're experiencing. I think it's important for us to realize, too, that um, uh, religious trauma kind of presents as a, uh, and this is not in the, the DSM either, but it's uh, kind of, it presents kind of like complex PTSD. That is, it's not just one single event. It's a um, exposure to many things over a long period of time, many times. I mean, yes, there can be isolated moments in that person's story, but oftentimes you listen to them and, and you're not gonna go, oh, it's that. It's not, it's, it's a whole experience that has compounded to create uh, distress, okay? Um, trauma is not synonymous with abuse. So I think um, uh, clinicians, I think, know this, but as uh, people who are maybe not clinicians, we might associate these two things as just equal, like they're the same thing, okay? What I'd like you to realize is that trauma is about how I experience something or you experience something that has happened to you, okay? Um, and that's different than what someone has done to you, okay? That's, that's a little different. That's important. 
um, for us to realize that because some people will experience things as traumatic and other people, they won't. And sometimes that becomes the point where someone says, that's not traumatic, you know, that's not traumatic. I did, I went through the same thing, you know. It's like, what? With person-centered trauma, it's not about the other person. It's about me. It's about you, okay? So trauma, trauma is not synonymous with abuse. It's important to know that. And the same experiences may be traumatic to one person and aren't for another, okay? Um, <clears throat> when we talk about the abuse side of things, I really like from the same 2023 article by Slade um, and his team, uh, this kind of description that encompasses more than just abuse, because we know, kind of have a, have a sense in the community, in the world, of what abuse might look like, but let's broaden our scope here. Because adverse religious experiences could be a lot greater than some of the things we're familiar with. You know, we talk about child abuse, you know, we're talking about um, those kinds of, like elder abuse, you know. But let's broaden our picture of what um, adverse religious experiences might be. Uh, Sladen's team came up with this as a description. Any experience of a religious belief or practice or structure that undermines an individual's sense of self or autonomy and or negatively impacts their physical, social, emotional, relational, sexual, or psychological well-being, okay? Something to, to hold on to for us. So um, in terms of some of the research, the same article from Slade uh, has identified that about, look at it, 30% almost, 27 to 33% conservatively estimated um, based on their research, experienced religious trauma at some point in their life. At some point in their life, they could identify something like that. 10 to 15%, and this is another conservative estimate, uh, of US adults currently suffer from religious trauma. So this orients for us a little bit about how to think about religious trauma, it's not far away. You know, there are people in our lives who are experiencing this. Um, <clears throat> in the UK, we also see some estimates here um, by Oakley and Kilmold, who uh, surveyed members of churches and found that 70% of those people reported feeling manipulated at church. 56% said they didn't trust the church that they were in. Interestingly, though, only 15% claim they no longer trusted God. And I would really like to draw something out about that because it, for me, uh, signals to me something that as a pastor I've often thought, which is that this message that people are becoming less spiritual, that, that I feel like that message is not true, okay? Even in people's hurt, they're casting it towards the institution to which they belong and not specifically to God most of the time. So God, in a sense, has uh, not an image problem. God has an institutional problem, okay? 
66% of participants expressed not knowing where to get help. And this is a really important from, for our churches. If I asked you today, and I'm, this is I'm rhetorical, if I asked you today, where would you go if you needed support in your congregation if you experienced trauma, if someone in the leadership did something in your congregation that caused some trauma or caused some abuse, where would you go? for that kind of support. Sometimes what happens is a person experiences trauma and then they are put in a room with the person that they feel traumatized by. And it's not good. We've got to find better and more powerful options um, for our congregations and for our members than that. Um, uh, as we think about the, uh, uh, the issue of re uh, religious trauma, I want to just highlight for a moment uh, the intersection of that with, um, uh, with people, that uh, indigenous children often have been experienced uh, religious trauma uh, through the adoption system, through foster care. The LGBTQIA plus community um, has uh, been where most of the re research of religious trauma has focused its attention because of the experiences and the testimonies of uh, those people. Uh, those in our community that are part of the non-dominant non racial and ethnic groups often um, are exposed to religious trauma. Um, disabled people, people with disabilities, um, also uh, another group uh, who experience some vulnerability to religious trauma. But I also just wanna just note church members Okay, church members, they're vulnerable to religious trauma because you're part of a community of believers. Ex-church members are vulnerable to uh, re-traumatization or traumatization from the faith community they left. Um, leaving your family, uh, leaving your friends, leaving your safety, leaving your security, um, and that's really tough. Pastors, um, you know, I'm, I don't, I thought about giving, uh, doing an interview for this, but as a pastor who's full time for more than 15 years, but I've been doing this my entire life <laughs> uh, since I turned 17. I am 40 now. I can tell you uh, your pastors are tired. They are hurt. They are exhausted. They, are, have, they have less support than they need. And the experience of doing ministry can very often be distressing and traumatizing. Um, I was in a meeting one time uh, with a religious leaders. Uh, I had um, uh, at a church that I was a, uh, a pastor of, and I was new, and I had meetings every week that were about how I did not live up to their expectations. And I eventually had to just say, hey, I'm done with these meetings. <laughs> I'm not gonna lower the tone of my voice because you don't like the pitch, <laughs> okay? Uh, I am going to be focused on authentic chase, you know, authentic chase.
So pastors are experiencing a lot of that, and clinicians are experiencing secondary exposure because of the overwhelm of stories that they're hearing, okay? So that's really important uh, to realize. That um, Slade article that just came out also identified six frequent and chronic symptoms, but I, I want to guard against something here, and that is I going to, I'm giving you symptoms. I'm not giving you all the symptoms. So if you look at this list and you only look for these things, that's all you'll find, okay? The list, like in PTSD, is broad, okay? And so um, uh, this is the things that frequently people who've experienced trauma self-identify with, and that is anxiety, shame, depression, stress, fear, nightmares, okay? Um, interestingly enough, uh, <laughs> I never, I avoided therapy for most of my life. Turned out I really needed it. Um, and I spent a year in therapy, and I, when I hit a critical point in my therapy, uh, I stopped being afraid of the dark. Mm. And I was like, I didn't even know that was a symptom of my anxiety, but it was, okay? Sometimes we don't even know biologically, like in our bodies, what kind of stress reactions we're gonna have until one day, they lift, maybe even temporarily. Uh, and then we realize, oh, wait a minute, that was a symptom of something I was struggling with. And I just thought, you know, I have work to do. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about toxic traits of leadership. So uh, Ward describes in his article some of the common factors for healthy leadership and toxic leadership. Uh, the toxic traits are on the right, healthy traits that he identifies are on the left. And I want you to just look at this list here for a second. The leadership recognizes and is sensitive to power, to power issues, right? We're paying attention to power issues. Uh, we're accepting the individual as having intrinsic value and worth. We are incorporating healthy biopsychosocial spiritual integration into the way that we do our, our leadership. Um, or our pastoring. We encourage an, a spirituality that can be expressed uniquely by each member. That is going back to the first testimony that I shared with you. Uh, when you're just um, healthy leadership is able to see a person as an individual as who is diverse, a person who is um, unique and is able to nurture that rather than to force them to conform into the identity of the church or to acculturate them into what they see as a proper Christian should be or a proper um, whatever faith tradition you are a part of, uh, how that fits. Um, leadership recognizes and acknowledges their own flaws and limitations. Uh, these are probably just the beginning of a list. The other list I want you to kind of notice here, awareness of power issues but dismissed due to narcissistic rewards through symbolic authority. Okay, um, uh, people see the power dynamics, and they're happy to have them. Okay, I mean, acceptance by leadership dependent upon performance. Um, people are looking for that. A spiritual lens that takes priority to the detriment of the facets of our humanity. Spiritual needs are exploited to satisfy the narcissistic needs of the leader. Do you see how much ego is coming out? In this, okay? Spirituality is narrowing, I mean, narrowly built around the self-centered perspective of the leadership. And leadership with poor self-awareness and self-evaluation 
the group becomes an extension of the leader's narcissistic ego. Um, look at, let's look at it just a little bit differently. Healthy leadership there, understands. Where, yeah. Where, where can we find that list? Who was the author there? Um, yes. Uh, so uh, that's Ward, 2011, and when I I will I'll point you towards that literature at, at the end. Okay. And um, you're welcome to find this presentation um, when I post it later. Oh great. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah, you'll have access to this material Thank as well. You. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, probably yeah. should have said that before you started yeah. writing. <laughs> <laughs> what so, to you? I <laughs> um, uh, healthy leadership understands the immeasurable value of individuals by supporting autonomy, encouraging curiosity, adjusting for differentials in power, and encouraging oversight. Toxic leadership orients the life of the membership around the leader's needs and protects itself from oversight or negative evaluation, okay? So, um, uh, when, uh, sorry, I do wanna say one more thing about this. Uh, one of the things um, that I have uh, enjoyed doing in my life is uh, and Candace, you and I have both got to do this, is sitting with Landon and listening to him, Landon Saunders, and listen to him talk about his view of the human being. And one of the things that Landon has tried to share with the world is the importance of seeing the human being and rather than reading the person through scripture, reading scripture through the person. And I think as leadership, we are constantly needing to be reminded, um, pastors are needing to be reminded of how we put the person in the right location of our ministry. Um, we're not trying to fit them into something. We're seeing the world through their, their identity, their humanness. There are some questions moving forward as we think about this. Um, and I considered some kind of didactic uh, <laughs> informational process that would give you the, all the tools you need to beat religious trauma in your churches, but I'm gonna tell you that's not how it's gonna work. <laughs> not in reality. I want you to think about just some of these questions. What emotional and ideological barriers exist to showing compassion to those who've experienced trauma? <clears throat> there are gonna be barriers in our congregations and in our communities. So we've gotta start looking for what those might be. And that might be different depending on where you are. The way leadership is organized, uh, the way discipleship programs are, are, are utilized within your church, create uh, sometimes create a differential in power. And when we have differentials in power, we have to look for uh, how religious trauma might be introduced into our system. Who is vulnerable to abuse in, in or on the peripheral of our community? Uh, we gotta pay attention to who those people are in our community that might be experiencing uh, religious trauma? Uh, how can I provide ongoing psychoeducation to my leadership? And this is really important because it's actually effective. Building awareness, building awareness about abuse actually reduces it in our communities. It 
teaches leaders to see those places in our communities, to look for them, and actually has an effect, okay? So um, it is vital for ongoing psychoeducation uh, to understand these things. Uh, what pathways are available for supporting people in distress, in distress or ex experiencing trauma? Again, I mentioned that earlier, but look for uh, the ways that we can support people. Where do people go to report a situation? And I think uh, at the bottom here I've put, what are you nurturing? <laughs> if you've ever read the book called um, a Church Called Tov by Scott McKnight. I love his uh, descri description of nurturing um, the church through these different things, like the love that, uh, uh, the love, the goodness, the, um, uh, the, in the life of the church. And so uh, I would definitely recommend reading his book. I think it offers a perspective on healthy church. But what are we nurturing in our communities? How do we... Um, establish for ourselves um, a, a way of being together that allows people to share when they've been hurt, that reduces that kind of issue in, in, in our communities because we're dealing with the differentials in power. We are looking at how we're protecting people's autonomy, okay? Um, and I would say we have to have more resources than silence. I think sometimes people think that silence is a way of protecting someone who's experienced hurt because we think, well, maybe um, if, we, if we don't say anything, we don't want to draw attention to them, we don't want to cause harm to them, but we've got to have more tools than that because people end up feeling like they are isolated and alone, okay? Um, I, as a pastor, am getting calls from people in, uh, associated in my vicinity where I live, and I'm getting calls from outside of my city and outside of my state from uh, mothers and fathers and uh, grandparents who are not sure how to deal with the circumstances in their family because uh, the church has told them something about what's right, about people's bodies, about people's gender, about people's orientation. And they don't know if they're allowed to love their children or their grandchildren. And they don't have anywhere to talk about that in their communities. So they're calling me. And it is a shame, it's sad, it hurts to know that they have to come in silence, okay? That this is a secret thing. Sometimes they're not telling their spouses, okay? Because they, don't, they can't even talk to their spouses about how to talk about our identities with their, with their children. If their children comes and says, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm trans, and transgender, and I am, uh, want you to call me by they now, and I'm getting grandparents like, I don't know what to do, I don't understand this stuff, can you please help me? And I can't tell anyone. And the reality is uh, that these are conversations that should be happening in the light, 
should be happening in a place they feel safe um, in their community. And we want to be able to provide that for them. So, um, wow, I took 45 minutes and didn't give a chance to ask a question, but please ask me a question before I go. <laughs> I may not have an answer for you. Um, yes. I think you kind of defined it because you started out saying that sometimes silence is not the way to deal with this. Um, so, but in context, you seem to explain it meaning that we don't want to encourage people to remain silent about the trauma that they're experienced or have experienced, but to learn to talk about it in trusting communities. Um, so, I don't know if that's a question, but you brought some clarity at the end on what you were saying. So I would say, how would you sit with people who have experienced trauma? Okay, yeah, um, well, there was two things there, just to clarify for the recorder that you were asking about um, the subject of silence, and, um, and then uh, and to say your next question again, what was the other one about how to sit with people? Yes. Okay, um, yeah, so I, I think both, both, I was kind of talking about two different issues of silence there. One is that um, an individual who's experienced trauma, they, uh, uh, they need a pathway to be able to communicate and not be silenced by the institutional pressures, okay? The other side of it is that as congregations, we have and we lean towards silencing indi individuals who've experienced trauma, and that is not a good tool for helping people, okay? So that, uh, both sides of that. And the other issue of um, sitting with people uh, is, uh, uh, you know, a foundation, first of all, of the human being, that the person that you're sitting with has a measurable value, that their story is critical to their way of life, to who they are, but also with curiosity. I want to be able to sit with them in curiosity about their experience because even if I heard that story a hundred times, it's their story and it's going to be unique to them. And so I want to hear their personal story. Um, and uh, um, I think it probably begins with a lot of self-work for us, okay? Yeah. That nobody comes to you until they know you're safe. And so we have to establish um, a spiritual presence uh, with people that lets them know that without us having to tell them that. I mean, we could tell them that. It's not as good as them knowing that, okay? I uh, hope, that, hope that helped. Um, yeah, that's great, so. thank you. Thank you so much for being, and being present today. How will we access the presentation? Okay. Yes, um, so uh, it will not be up today, but I will, um, I, I'm having my website redone and as soon as that website is redone, I will post it there. That website will be? Chase it's my name, chasedimaggio.com. So you can find it there, I will post it there. Um, if you are a clinician, um, I'm giving another presentation online at 12.30, and that is a clinician's perspective on the same subject with a team of other people. Um, if you'd like to sit in on that, online, uh, you can uh, talk to me and I'll give you a link for it. Was that on the program? It's not a Harbor thing. I just happen to be doing it the same day. <laughs> that will also be on my website later on. You can watch it at another time.
Okay. Will that be available to, to access after it happens? Or yes, it will be a, a video will access later. Will I'm be, a therapist, and uh, I'd love to. Yes, um, yeah, chasedimaggio.com uh, later will have it. And I can send you the, the, the link if you'd like as well. We can, we can exchange you. digits there. I'll give you that. So, thank all right, thank you all. Uh, have, have a very good day. Thank and you. feel free to talk to me about this afterwards. Thank you.